like like a little known story. Uh, something I always think is surprisingly unknown is, you know, the episode in 1967 where they all d- decided to buy a Greek island together yeah. <laughs> and move in, and yeah. and that they actually did it. They actually bought an island from Greece, which is completely <laughs> insane. And they bought a Greek island and they went there for two weeks and they were like, oh, okay, that was fun. They sold it back to Greece. But yeah. like they actually <laughs> followed through on this fantasy. Junctures from Liverpool, England. The significance is that the Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Hello, I'm Jack. And you're listening to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast, an interview show about the Beatles' influence in the past, present, and future across the universe and across generations. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Thank you all for your continued support of the show. If this is your first time listening, welcome. You are in for a fantastic first episode. I'm thrilled to say we have a very special guest on the podcast today the legendary Rob Sheffield. Rob has been a music journalist for over 20 years. He's a contributing editor to Rolling Stone, where he writes about music, TV, and pop culture. Rob has interviewed both Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, and wrote a book about the Beatles titled Dreaming the Beatles, which I highly recommend you check out. The link to the book and the other things discussed in this episode will all be linked in the podcast description. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll enjoy. Hey, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? Great, Jack. Great to meet you. It's so nice to meet you, too. It's an honor to have you on. Big fan. Oh, yeah. I'm a huge fan of yours as well, (laughs) and the Beatles, and I'm glad we both share that fandom. Yes. What was the first time that you ever heard the Beatles? The first time I heard the Beatles, I was five years old, and I was watching TV and there was a movie on called Help. And it's funny that Help is, you know, it's it's the least, well, you, you, if you count Magical Mystery Tour, I guess it's not the Beatles' uh, least taken seriously movie, but I happen to love it. Um, and for me, it was seeing the Beatles and hearing the Beatles and experiencing the whole Beatles cosmology for the first time. So the movie begins, if you know it, with, you know, the four Beatles in black and white footage, they're doing the song Help with acoustic guitars. They're wearing like black turtlenecks and leotards and they're just doing this song and they're singing together about their feelings. And I was like, these are a bunch of grown men and they're telling this really personal, emotional story. And the friends are like helping him tell his story because he says, when, when I was young, when I was young. And, you know, they're just not like they're listening to his story. They're helping him tell his story. And it was mind-blowing on every possible level, and it just got better from there. And so help was my gateway. So were you instantly hooked when you saw that movie at five years old? Absolutely. Well, and it's funny how the movie is paced, because then, you know, the next song, you know, they, they're sitting on the floor of their shared living room, and they're doing You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. And, you know, later in the movie, there's you gotta, You're Gonna Lose That Girl, and ticket to ride and like all these songs so i was hearing them as they happen in the movie with no preconceptions of who the beatles were or where these songs were coming from or what role they played in the beatles story and it it was honestly it was like just 
walking into my living room and suddenly finding, you know, the, the, the Kuiper belt and, you know, the asteroids orbiting Neptune suddenly there. Everything was different. The world was bigger and broader and wider and much more fun. And what were your thoughts when you first heard those songs as such a young kid? Well, they were so clearly personal and emotional in a way that at that time in the 1970s, it was uh, really unusual to to sort of encounter that, but that there was so much boyish enthusiasm. You know, it's it's like a cartoon. That's something, you know, John said it was, it was crap. He said it was like we were being extras in our own movie. It was like a cartoon and it was like a cartoon. It was, it was shenanigans and hijinks, but, you know, there was an awful lot of uh, emotional stuff going on in the songs and in their interactions and therefore personalities coming together in really different ways and in really subtle ways, in ways that certainly seem, you know, accessible to me when I watch it now, no matter how many times I've seen it. But it was really wild that like it introduced me to these four boys who are also men and men who are also boys who had this unique sort of bond, this unique sort of friendship. And they were having adventures, kind of like other you know, gangs that you'd see on Kitty TV, like, you know, Scooby-Doo and his pals, you know, solving mysteries in the mystery machine. Help isn't so far from an episode of Scooby-Doo in a lot of ways. But, you know, they're singing these astounding songs that are very personal and very emotionally forthright. I, I think the Help songs are totally underrated. So to me, I, I fell in love with the music. I fell in love with them. I fell in love with everything on screen. The way that Eleanor Braun in that movie is, you know, a co-adventurer with them. You know, she's on this equal level. She's, you know, she's the one who knows the plot. She's, you know, she's like, I am not what I seem. Like, she's very much like the women characters in the songs they were writing in those times. She's very uh, independent and very uh, adventurous and very... Um, She's got her own story. She's not just, you know, a side character in this story. So what happened after that? Did you, uh, when did you start to become a fan? Did you go to the record store like right away and take a deep dive into their catalog? Did you watch A Hard Day's Night? Uh, goodness. I was way too young. So I didn't know, you know, where these songs were from. I I, I couldn't go to a record store and, and, and certainly not buy the records. I, um... But my sisters and I, because my sisters and I, we were all watching and we all kind of like fell together. Um, my sisters and I are around the same age. I was five. They were four and three. So we were like three kids very close together in age. And we were all just kind of like stunned by what we saw. And so Channel 56, which was the UHF station in Boston, they played A Hard Day's Night an awful lot. And they played it like a few times a year. So we put a tape recorder up to the TV and taped the songs from the movie. So my association with those songs, you know, so to me, I hear the song the night before, I still hear a bomb going off halfway through because that's when they're <laughs> doing the recording session on Stonehenge. <laughs> and Leo McKern and, and his, his his gang blow up the, the, the recording session on Salisbury Plain. <laughs> but to me, like that's how I first heard those songs, but also it's how I first heard the Beatles. And hearing a song like Ticket to Ride, which is just an astoundingly adult song and I felt incredibly uh, mature for my age, which again was five. You know, it's not that hard to feel <laughs> mature for five. But, you know, I felt like they were telling this story that was a little bit above, it was a little over my head. I was definitely aware that I was too young to understand the full impact of this story, but very plain spoken, very emotional. It was a, a new way of feeling and a new way of moving through the world. 
When did you first become interested in writing? I was interested in writing, I guess, around the same time. You know, I was a, a little kid. I was always reading stuff, Encyclopedia Brown, Sherlock Holmes, uh, stuff like that. And I uh, I was always reading, and so I was always writing, and, and I would make up Beatles sort of fanfic adventure stories. I would draw little Beatles cartoons. I wasn't like a good drawer, so my my comic artist sensibilities didn't have a chance to develop very far. But, you know, the Beatles played a huge role in my imagination, like, ever since then. And so for me, like, writing was just kind of the natural formative. And can you walk us through your career? How did you go from writing Beatles fan fictions to working at Rolling Stone and writing Beatles articles and a book about the Beatles? Yeah, I just always kept writing about music. I, I kept writing about a lot of things. But music was a topic I just kept returning to. And, you know, I I went to school, I went to grad school in English. And I just, I still had that passion to write about music. I kept writing about music. And it was the sort of thing of like, I did it for fun, freelance, and started to get paid for it. And eventually, that became like the main thing I did. That became my career. And it was something that I was so madly passionate about and enthusiastic about I, you know, it, it seemed strange to think that it had become my life's work, but it it did. And I've been doing it for just an awful long time since then. I'm still crazy about new music. I'm still always looking for my next new favorite bands, my next new favorite records, my next new favorite artists. And there's always so much more out there, so much more than than anybody could keep up with. So I never have trouble finding new stuff to fall in love with, but some stuff like the Beatles or Dylan or Aretha Franklin or or David Bowie just follows you around for life. You hear it once and and you're just hooked. Has your career led you to any personal encounters with any members of the Beatles? I've interviewed them, uh, Paul and Ringo. I've I've done a fair amount of writing about the Beatles over the years uh, for Rolling Stone. The uh, so I've I've you know Paul and and Ringo are I, I know through you know just doing interview situations and that's but you know I, I feel like the deepest level of of personal contact is still with the music you know like um that's nothing could really like compare to that I, you know that's how we know these people so after um paul did that amazing hulu documentary last year with rick rubin the 321 documentary where he's just you know just two guys in a studio listening to those songs. And it's funny that that's such a great documentary and so overshadowed just a few months later by Get Back that at this point, I feel like now it's like, it's the great forgotten Beatles documentary of 2021. Yeah. <laughs> like This was less than a year ago and it was so, you know, so snowballed under by the Get Back phenomenon. So I think we're about to see a revival of 321 because that's incredible and there was nothing like it before with just, you know, Paul just full on geeking out about all these individual instrumental parts. But I wrote something about it for Rolling Stone, and I guess Paul saw it and liked it, and he wanted to do this three-way Zoom interview with me and Rick Rubin and him. And, you know, they were very generous. You know, like, we were expecting, like, maybe 20 or 30 minutes in, in our wildest fantasy imaginations, and they just stayed on the line for a couple hours because they were just enjoying just talking about this music. It was just incredibly fun. As a Beatles fan, what was it like the first time you met Paul and Ringo? Well, it's, you know, it's, uh, again, like you feel like you know these people through their music and in a way that's, you know, the main relationship, you know, and, you know, even like 
you know, encountering them in an interview situation or, or any kind of like real life situation that's one part of, you know, whatever kind of personal memories that you have with them. But it's really like, you know, no matter, I feel like no matter how many times I would interview Paul, it could never approximate to like listening to him sing for no one, you know, when I was 15 years old. I feel like that's as close as anybody can get to Paul McCartney, really. Like he's, he's, he puts himself in the music and, and Ringo very much the same way. Yeah. I mean, I completely yeah. agree. Like I've never met Paul. And every time I've tried to imagine what it would be like meeting Paul, I just can't imagine it. I can't imagine what I would say. Um, maybe just because he's larger than life. And uh, I don't know. And, and you know, we've known them our whole lives and, and we've gone through changes with them. You know, yeah. sometimes, you know, George is someone who like I've had a lot of identification with through my life. And sometimes I feel like, you know, bearded, sage, grumpy adult sitting in his garden you know, like complaining about Maya and, you know, the world. Yeah. And th sometimes I feel like that, George, you know, and sometimes I feel like, you know, boyish, you know, it's a hard day's night. And like, I can't believe I get to do this. I'm playing, I'm in a movie playing myself. I've got that incredibly funny scene where I'm making fun of the producer and the director. Like, well, you won't, you won't mess with the basic rugged concept of my personality, you know, and, and, and that, that he is just so, you know, quite prepared for that eventuality. He's doing his George dry humor and he's got these great scenes. And of course he's showing off for Patty Boyd, who he winds up marrying. And just sometimes I feel like that totally boyish, enthusiastic George. Sometimes I feel like, you know, old, severe living in the material world, George. And sometimes I feel like you know, even older than that, just kind of like mellowing with time, solo George Harrison album. I know you're a big fan of that 1979 self-titled album. Oh yeah. yeah. We could talk about that all day, but yeah. I, 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 I feel like different phases of my life, I have different identifications with them. And, you know, we know all these Beatles, we carry them with us. Well, I mean, if I was to ever meet Paul, I feel like a part of me would be very inclined to say, hey, Paul, do you remember that bus ride in 10th grade when, when this <laughs> happened? And Absolutely. Obviously, he would say, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but yes, we grew up with them and we have this relationship with them and they are our friends and they're always there, you know? Absolutely. They've, you know, they've seen us at our worst moments, you know, like we, we've told them things we wouldn't tell our best friends. They've seen us at our happiest and at our saddest, you know, they've seen us when we shut out the rest of the world and just put on the headphones and just, you know, looked for moments of solace or moments of escape or moments of celebration. But I, I feel like the Beatles see us at our most extreme. Yeah. And they always answer their text messages too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I take it the Beatles have influenced your life in a pretty huge way. Yeah, pretty much every every possible way. They've they've pretty much like influenced just a, a lot of how I see the world, how I experience the world. Certainly like the values that the Beatles stood for just in terms of constant curiosity that they were always learning something and people make fun of that about them, especially John that he was always learning about something and getting gung-ho about this latest fad or philosophy he was into and then six months later it'd be something else but just right. that mystique of lifelong curiosity that the Beatles had and lifelong growth that to me is just endlessly fascinating that Paul McCartney in his capacity his endless capacity for enthusiasm which he had more than the others but they all had it they all had this superhuman kind of enthusiasm that allowed them to do what they did for as long as they did 
and people say, oh, they were only together for 10 years. It's completely insane that they were able to do it for a month. Anybody else trying to fill their shoes would have crumbled in, in you know, 12 to 16 hours. It's just yeah. not possible to be that enthusiastic, that on and that introspective at the same time. It's an almost impossible balancing act. And, you know, that the Beatles were able to sort of, you know, combine that curiosity, that enthusiasm, that that enthusiasm, that sort of embrace of the world in all these different forms, intellectually and culturally and emotionally, politically. And so I, I find that influences everything, everything about the way I see the world, really. Now, do you think that naturally you're more inclined to go that route and the Beatles have kind of encouraged that and brought that out of you? Or do you think that because you're a fan of the Beatles, that's why you're inclined to go that route? That's a good question. I kind of feel, I mean, part of my writing about the Beatles, very fixated on how the world was different pre-Beatles in ways that we're still kind of catching up with and taking for granted. Um, certainly in ways, in terms of, you know, just my adult life as 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 a male Beatle fan and sort of like the way they defined um, new types of adult maleness in a way that... Um, so unprecedented on that kind of cultural level. And that's something that is really different from, I'm very conscious that this is different from how my ancestors went through this time. You know, my father and my grandfathers and my great grandfathers, this is different from their time of life because, you know, we have the Beatles now. And it's it's funny that I, I'm always fixated on ways that the world was different. I mean, I enjoyed that movie yesterday where you know, the guy goes back in time to a world with no Beatles. And I was like, wait a minute, he's got a Beatle haircut. Every male in this movie has a Beatle haircut. None of the male characters in this movie would have this haircut if the Beatles didn't exist. That's you know? right. Like, yeah. And that's just one of the millions of ways. And something I mentioned in the book is like going to therapy. And it was so shocking, you know, when I was a little kid in the 70s, to read about John talking out loud about going to therapy. I could not even imagine any of the adult males in my world going to therapy or talking about it in any kind of public way. And you know, that's not even one of the top thousand ways John Lennon changed the world. But, you know, it's it's there even in the tiniest details. You know, you mentioned the Beatles haircuts. And when I was younger, I was about 12 years old. I grew my hair down to my shoulders, obviously inspired by the Beatles. <laughs> and it, it came time for a haircut. But and, I, you know, I was dreading that day. But I found solace in the fact that, you know, this is my John Lennon in 1966, Almira, Spain, <laughs> how I won the war. This is, you know, this is my haircut time. <laughs> and I would say, okay, it's going to be all right. I love that. But it, it's also, it's funny just because, you know, your Beatles are so different from other people's Beatles and that the Beatles are so universal on a way that's not like other pop culture experiences or cultural experiences in general. Um I'm always learning from my nieces and nephews and how crazy about the Beatles they are, which you know is so amusing to my sisters who whose moms these kids are. And it's funny because when my sisters and I were little kids in the 70s, it was so amusing to our parents that we were so crazy about the Beatles and that we wanted to listen to the Beatles all the time and that we were obsessed with details about the Beatles. And my parents would always say, you know, they broke up, right? The Beatles, they don't even <laughs> exist anymore. And they thought it was so weird that we were still into the Beatles after they broke up. And, <laughs> you know, through the 70s, you know, people were still really weirded out by the fact that little kids like us were into the Beatles. And now, yeah. you know, now it's my sister's turn. You know, now they're the moms and like they're little kids. 
you know, they were born in the, in, you know, in the, 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 the late nineties and in the two thousands and in the 20 teens. And right. these little kids, they have their relationship with the Beatles. My nephew was showing me the Lego yellow submarine that he was building. Right. And he was like, okay, this is Paul and this is John. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but that's, that's something I love about the Beatles. And that's something that is, you know, it's so funny that the Beatles, they just, something about the way that they connect with the mind, the old mind, the young mind, different types of minds, another kind of mind, as, as the song says, but right. that, that, you know, that nobody ever has to sort of convince young people about the Beatles, that there's something about the music that just sort of insinuates. This is actually something you talked about in your book, Dreaming the Beatles. Why are the Beatles ever present and why are they infinitely relevant? It's a wild kind of thing. It's something that I've spent my whole life trying to understand without getting any closer to figuring out the mystery than I am now. But I just want to see the mystery a little clearer. But you know, it's wild that the Beatles are the world's favorite thing. And they have been the world's favorite thing for my entire life. And you know, there's no Beatles of anything else. You can't say that they're, you know, the world's favorite music because, you know, there isn't a Beatles of movies, there isn't a Beatles of books, there isn't a Beatles of food, there isn't a Beatles of anything else. And, you know, there is just the Beatles who, you know, this extremely strange, you know, collection, anthology, as it were, of cultural collisions happening in this place and in this time, but it happened around the world. And to me, the interesting thing about the Beatles and why I wanted to write Dreaming the Beatles, I wanted to write a book about the Beatles that wasn't about the 60s, because it makes sense that the Beatles were big in the 60s, right? Like, if they weren't the biggest band in the 60s, somebody else would have been. To me, the weirdest thing about the Beatles is that after they broke up, they just kept getting bigger. They just kept getting more beloved. They just kept getting more famous and that they're more famous now than they were when they actually existed. And so to me, like the really weird question is, you know, what was happening in the 60s? It's it's like, why now? What Like, why is it that the Beatles that, you know, they do not fade with time? Why is it that, you know, why is it that they resonate through time, that they travel through time the way they do, that just other artifacts of, of culture just don't. Right. To, to me, like the fascinating thing about the Beatles is what they mean to right now. And it's beyond anything that the Beatles would have guessed, you know, even at their most, you know, megalomaniac, egomaniac, you know, like we're going to be the toppermost of the poppermost. They, right. they would not have imagined that, you know, over 50 years after they stopped existing as a band, that, you know, they would be the world's favorite thing. You know, they would be the world's yeah. favorite music, also the world's favorite story of friendship, the world's favorite symbol of friendship, the world's favorite team. It's it's just a really unusual cultural story. And I feel like it's a permanent one, the way something like Romeo and Juliet is a permanent cultural story, you know, like or or Julius Caesar or Alice in Wonderland. These are permanent cultural myths, but the Beatles are just they're one of them. They really are larger than life. And like you said before, your Beatles are different than my Beatles. Everybody's Beatles are different. So I wonder if, do you think Paul McCartney's Beatles are different than everybody else's? Like when he sees the Get Back documentary shatter streaming records across the internet and Let It Be shoots to the top of the charts 50 years later, do you think that he identifies with the group that's doing all that? Or do you think he has a different story? Well, 
it's very interesting. Honestly, it's crazy that he keeps making music. He keeps like making records. Uh, he loves that he is still a working contemporary artist. And I feel like part of how he has really sort of, um, you know, come to really like enjoy and relish the Beatles' legacy um, and, and the way that he can enjoy it is, is just because he's making his own music. It, I mean, you know, McCartney 3 was great. Egypt Station was like just a fantastic album. To me, that's a top five McCartney solo album. Uh, Chaos and Creation is way up there too. He's. It's not like he had a burst of success in his 20s and he's been sort of riding the wave since then. He. It wouldn't be enough for him to be that kind of artist. You know, that's why he's, even on his new tour, Paul just started doing his new tour, his Got Back tour. And he's doing, you know, half a dozen new songs in the set, you know, and like, and, you know, he has a joke, a joke he's been saying for years on his shows. He's like, yeah, we can tell that you don't like the new songs as much because we can see, you know, everybody puts their phones away when we do a new one. You know, like I do something like Penny Lane, everybody gets their phone out. I do Queenie Eye and it's like a black hole. But, you know, he's like, but, you know, I just like doing them. And you can tell he takes a lot of pride in that as well he should, because there's honestly like no comparable example. Um, right. you, know, you go see the Rolling Stones, you know, even without Charlie Watts, they're still fantastic band i saw them on their 2019 tour i saw a few of their shows they were like completely phenomenal they weren't doing any songs from 2019 they were really smart they knew nobody wanted to they didn't do anything from the 20th century they from i mean the 21st century like they they knew that you know they weren't going to waste people's time with that they weren't going to insult right. anybody's intelligence paul mccartney he's like but i'm still writing new songs he's probably written you know a new song while we've been having this conversation but he's like yeah. he he is a compulsive music maker and that is something that is beautiful and unique about do you have a favorite fact about the beatles that some people may not know wow i you know there's 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 so many to me like kind of like the most fascinating beetle facts are not the you know sort of esoteric little known stories but they're the very public stories that everybody knows so we take them for granted and we don't see how weird they are for me my absolute favorite beetle story is just that you know that john and paul two people you know so absolutely unique were born at the same time in the same town and they found each other and they formed this band with George and they found Ringo and in this town where it could not have been more impossible for them to imagine being heard by the rest of England compared to the world I always love that great John quote from 1970 the Lennon remembers interview where he says you know London was something we used to dream of and London's nothing and I just love that because yes like you listen to the Beatles with their raw accents, you know, and, and, you know, they're, they're, they're raw, everything about them. Like it was completely mind blowingly, like even in their most arrogant moments, they could not have imagined that they would mean to the world what they meant and certainly not mean to the world what they have kept meaning ever since then. And, you know, something when you see a hard day's night and help now, just how abrasive and provincial those accents are it's really hard to understand what they're saying if you're like a little american kid and you've never heard english accents before because these are really particular english accents it must have been really hard you know for people in the rest of england to understand a lot of what they were saying there's a lot of like really local liverpool slang but the fact that the beatles happened at all that they found each other that they had that will and that ability to create collectively this kind of music and that they were able to sort of keep inspiring each other keep competing with each other keep challenging with each other it's the most obvious part of the Beatles story and yet to me that's the weirdest and strangest part 
then they broke up to start new bands with their wives, which to me is like, that's again, it's, it's, it's in plain sight. It's not a hidden or little known or esoteric Beatles story, but as a culture, we have not even begun to, to reckon with the weirdness of that. There's <laughs> nothing even comparable, you know, like you can't imagine like the stones at their heyday with like Mick and Keith saying, uh, you know, we've decided that, you know, Mick is going to make music with Bianca. And, you know, <laughs> Keith and, and Anita are going to form the plastic Pallenberg band. And like, <laughs> like that, that there is like, like not that like other band, like the Beatles did so many things nobody had done before. Lots of those things people, people copied because the Beatles made it sound fun and made it sound easy. And so people copied them. Like even the whole thing of like writing your own songs, you know, which was, you know, not something you were supposed to do at that point. And yeah. after that, you know, it, it became something that, you know, people really took pride in. But, you know, Buddy Holly, he wrote his own songs, but he didn't brag about it because there was no percentage in it. It didn't, you didn't get any cool points from that. The Beatles, right. they wanted to be the names and the credits. They they always loved when they saw Carol King's name, Jerry Goffin's name, Smokey Robinson's name, and the, and the credits of a single and they wanted that tiny little part of the story for themselves along with everything else. So it's wild that there's so many things about the Beatles that are like public property and common knowledge that yeah. we all know that, that, you know, we've all known all our lives, but when you pay attention to them, like the fact that like John and Paul left the Beatles to make music with Yoko and Linda, that is absolutely, there is nothing comparably as weird in, you know, in, in rock <laughs> history or pop history. You know, it's it's not like NWA broke up because right. you know Easy E and Ice Cube wanted to make music with their wives. You know, like there's no <laughs> scenario anywhere in pop culture where this would happen. I I never thought of that in those terms before because I've always just taken it as for granted. It's you know, just a fact. We grew up with these stories in place, right? Yeah. And it's you know, like imagine like Marvel Comics ceases to exist because Stan Lee and Jack Kirby they're like we're gonna go make comics with our wives now. Yeah. You know, like there, there's no comparable example of this. And the fact that the Beatles were so modern in their attitudes about women and about collaborating with women and in terms of, you know, seeking as romantic partners, women who are artists who had their own careers, their own ideas, their own reputations, their own histories, their own artistic visions. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is something that is, it still seems like really wildly ahead of its time. Yeah. And I also think that they might have felt the most comfortable doing that since they probably felt like a family unit for 10 years. And then the most comfortable next step would be to go with your family and make music, continue making music with a different family, but still have that intimate feel. Yeah, absolutely. And it's because they'd done so many things before that seemed like completely out of whack with history that this must have seemed just one more. And like this, but this is one where like, all other brands were like, nope, I uh, uh, can't even imagine <laughs> such a thing. It's like, it's completely inconceivable that this happened. And and the weirdest part of it is that this wasn't, you know, just like a drug-induced mood that they were in for a few months. It isn't something, you can imagine like some bands having a stone fantasy of doing that. But like these marriages actually lasted. Both John and Paul, these women that they married, they stayed with the rest of their lives till death did them part. In rock and roll, considering... Rock stars who got married in 1969 who stayed married for the rest of their lives, that's got to be a pretty short list, right? Yeah. And there's probably only two of them. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably only those two. And you know, that John and Paul, like that, you know, that those, and that they both kept 
those creative partnerships continued along with the marriages. Like, it, like completely inconceivable that 10 years later, 1980, John is still making music with Yoko. Paul is still making music with Linda. Those marriages still exist. And it's, it's just kind of astounding. Everything about that story is so weird. But like you said, we grow up with that story and we, we take it for granted. But when you look at it, it, you know, it's weirder than the little known parts of the story. Like like a little known story, I, I, something I always think is surprisingly unknown is, you know, the episode in 1967 where they all d- decided to buy a Greek island together yeah. <laughs> and move in and, yeah. and that they actually did it. They actually bought an island from Greece, which is completely <laughs> insane. And they bought a Greek island and they went there for two weeks and they were like, oh, okay, that was fun. They sold it back to Greece. But yeah. like they actually followed through on this fantasy, like that they were going to, the four Beatles and their families and their entourage were going to move to a remote island off Greece and just have their own private communes there and their own recording studios. Like this is completely insane. Like no band, you know, like this, you know, you hear about bands like Khan doing this. They have a castle that they move into, but you know, like they're not the Beatles. Okay. Like they're not like the most <laughs> four famous people in the world. It's like, and s- stories like that are so mind blowing, but they fit into, you know, the larger story, which is that it's crazy that the Beatles found each other and they were able to create this community that has outlasted them. You know, the, the Beatles broke up, but the Beatles community worldwide said, okay, you four guys can break up if you want to. That's part of our communal story now, but this community is still together. And all four right. Beatles found that really bizarre and all four of them reacted against it and resisted it at different points in their lives. But I love how John and George, they found peace with that, like in their lifetimes. And certainly Paul and Ringo in in recent years have really come to embrace that in ways that are really beautiful. If John had lived and it came the year 1985, 1990, do you think there would have been a Beatles reunion? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it would have happened in 82, um, maybe 83 or 84. 84 would have been a good year for it. Um, we know from you know the final days of John's life, sadly, uh, he was testifying in the Beatles' lawsuit against the, the Broadway play Beatlemania, and they were suing to shut it down. And John testified under oath a couple days after Thanksgiving that Beatlemania would hurt him financially. And he said, I and the other three Beatles have plans to do a reunion concert film and tour the world and make music together again. And, you know, we're like, well, okay, you know, maybe this is something that would have happened. He was under oath when he said it. This was a you know, legal deposition. Right. I learned this book from Peter. I learned the story from Peter Doggett's amazing book, You Never Give Me Your Money, The Beatles After the Breakup, which is just, just heartbreaking, also relentlessly hilarious book, like about this weird friendship that they still had that still lasted in all these inconvenient and infuriating ways. But that, you know, in in the final days of John's life, he was testifying under oath that, you know, the Beatles were indeed, they did have future plans. And I feel like after um, Double Fantasy had established his comeback, he would have been comfortable with working in that environment again. And I feel like, you know, George with his self-titled album, he would have been on board because the other two were. And George did a lot of wacky things, you know, for cash flow in the 80s. So I think they they would have found enough common ground to do it. Um, yeah. I think maybe, I guess, everybody's got an alternate timeline in my head, and I'd love to hear yours. But I imagine after Double Fantasy was a hit, that 
the Milk and Honey songs would have come out in 1982 and that those would have been even bigger because I think Milk and Honey is an even better album. That's an incredibly great album. Um, yeah. So many great. And you can tell that those songs aren't on double fantasy because they're just too happy and they're just yeah. too fun. And he, he wanted double fantasy to this big, you know, like we're still married and we're still together and we're making music again. You know, like let's embrace this, these lives that we've lived. Double Fantasy yeah. is very much that kind of concepts album. And Milk and Honey, he, he just had like a bunch of really fun songs that kind of didn't fit the concept. I feel like Milk and Honey would have come out in 1982 and been like an even bigger hit. And Paul would have had Tug of War and John would have had Gone Trop. I mean, George would have had Gone Tropo, which, mm-hmm. you know, not a big hit and right. definitely didn't deserve to be. But uh I feel like that would have been the place where they were like, okay, 82, we've proved what we need to prove in our solo paths. Let's make an album. And it would have come out in 1984, I think. Do you think it would have been as big as they were in the 60s? It would have been very different. And people have complained about it the way people constantly complained when the Stones made a new album in the 80s, when the Who made a new album in the 80s, or when, you know, Aretha Franklin made a new album in the 80s or Smokey Robinson. Every, Every time those albums happen, people are like, well, it's not like what they did in the 60s, you know, but the, they kept going. And, you know, now those records, out, they sound fantastic. I mean, you know, a lot of those people made terrible production choices. God knows, you know, David <laughs> Bowie and Lou Reed and Bob Dylan made a lot of albums with oh, great yeah. songs in the 80s with, you know, just unbearable production. As I think, you know, the surviving Beatles did, you know, some yeah. of the production on, on even the really good, like Paul and George records, it's got some questionable decisions but i think there's um i think people would have complained about it but i think it would have been good i think it would have been inspired Mm -hmm. i like to imagine you know what if paul brought in his tug of war songs and john brought in his milk and honey songs and you know and and john's got the milk and honey songs paul's got the tug of war songs george has got you know maybe songs that became wilbury's songs but they've all got stuff that they can pick on and you know, and they would inspire each other to create new stuff. And they would have come in with some, you know, some keepers and they would have kept going from there. I, uh, I do think that it would have been like the Stones where people are always complaining that the new stuff is a sellout. But I mean, it, nobody's life is worse because the Rolling Stones kept making records, you know, like we can, <laughs> you like those records or you don't. But, you know, nobody in 2022 who is sane is saying it really sucks that the Stones didn't break up you know, when, when Keith got busted in 78, like that's just a childish point of view that nobody has anymore. Like whether you like those records or not, nobody wishes they didn't exist. You mentioned the Beatles creating an eighties record and what the production would have sounded like if they went through with that. There was a 1980 interview with John Lennon in the studio. And in the background, you can hear him experimenting with Star Wars sounds like laser gun <laughs> sound effects. Yeah, it was it was really cool. Have you ever seen that? No, I got to check this out. I, I will send you the link and I'll, I'll put it in the podcast description below too. But I think he was kind of leaning towards like maybe experimenting with Star Wars sounds, seeing how that would fit on a record. Or just um, maybe they would have gone completely acoustic, like Dark Eyes with by Bob Dylan. And just throw that on an 80s album. Who I knows? I'm sure they would have done all these things. I love, wow, I love that Star Wars idea. You know, they probably, they just would have got real stoned one night and called George Lucas and said like, hey, 
we want to be in the next Star Wars movie. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't follow through with our Lord of the Rings movie that we were going to make with Stanley Kubrick, but we're going to do this one. You're going to make another Star Wars movie. It's going to be Return of the Beetle Jedi and make this happen, George. And of course, he would have yeah. done it. Of course, it would have happened. And, and you know, I, I feel like, you know, the, the stage was set for them to do all this stuff. And also, they were so open to new music in a way, you know, that, that, you know, Paul still is something he doesn't get enough credit for. But, you know, I love that McCartney 3 remix album. Yeah. He had like all these like, you know, all, all these people like, you know, doing like crazy things to his songs. He loves to do, you know, four or five seconds live, you know, his Rihanna and Kanye collaboration that probably they wouldn't do live. You know, they probably don't remember it. But like he loves that he made this song with them that was, you know, big top 10 hit. He He prizes that. And I feel like the Beatles, they would have, you know, in, in the eighties, I feel like they would have, you know, been making records with, you know, Big Daddy Kane and Marley Marl and Africa Bombada. You know, they would have been doing hip hop records. They would have been doing house records with Marshall Jefferson and Kevin Saunderson and Derek May. I feel like the Beatles, they had nothing to lose. They would have tried all these crazy ideas. And of course, a lot of them would have flopped and we'd laugh at them now. But I feel like they would have tried everything. They would have, you know, they would have done a track with Slayer. They would have done, you know, like a track with Terrence Trent Darby. God knows they would have made a Prince record. <laughs> like I feel right. like they were so open to experimentation and you know John like in in especially the final year of his life when he started playing music after his long layoff and he was just getting into post punk that he was just hearing for the first time you know the famous story of like he's you know in Bermuda in a disco and the, the DJ puts on rock lobster and he's like wait this sounds like yoko stuff He's like, well, I guess people do care about this stuff. And like, that makes him want to start writing songs again. He's like, made me think it's time to wife, wake up the wife and get me guitar out. And, right. and it's, it's a beautiful story that like the B-52s, I'm sure the last thing that they had on their mind was John Lennon hearing them and being inspired to write songs again. It's completely yeah. insane. But, you know, it's funny that it was that that, you know, that set off John Lennon and stuff like Blondie and Public Image Limited. Like, I feel like he would have been. He and Paul and George and Ringo, in their different ways, they would have been connected to stuff that was new and going on in a way that the Stones and the Who weren't. Yeah, absolutely. They were always uh, sponges and mirrors of of their influences. Absolutely. And I think you're right. That would have totally continued. We'd love to hear what that sounded like in the 90s, too. Um, Totally. And it's funny, you know, I love those Fireman records that like Paul made with youth. It's funny that like, Lots of people who love Paul McCartney, like, don't know that those records exist and haven't heard them. And it's funny that, like, you know, you hear them in a sort of blind set. The first time I, I heard one of them, like, a friend was playing it for me and didn't tell me who it was. He just told me it was the fireman. I was like, this is so good. When is this from? Like, and, you know, he took about 20 minutes to tell me it was Paul McCartney. And I was like, well, there you go. I had no <laughs> idea. But it was, you know, I feel like that side of them really would have flowered if they'd stayed together in the eighties, cause they didn't have to prove anything. They didn't have to still keep racking up hits. Honorable mention to the song, sing the changes. Absolutely. I, I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a big fan of the seventies, George, I know, which I am too. Oh yes. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, 33 and one third and self-titled all day long. I love every single song on there. I love those two albums. Love those. A pure smoky is one of my absolute favorite George songs. Yeah. It's so funny. It's a song that hardly anybody knows. It's just like buried on this album and you play it for literally anyone. And, you know, 
and it makes them just fall in love with George all over again. It makes them fall in love with Smokey Robinson again. Smokey yeah. Robinson, of course, you know, totally loved it. And, you know, of course, you know, the way that George loved Smokey Robinson and his music consistently and like kept like going back to that sort of sacred ground is like such a beautiful story in itself. But I, I love that there are these songs that George just had on his solo albums that even people who love him and look up to him and admire his music, like probably still haven't checked out. There's still so yeah. much to be discovered. Yeah, yeah, there really is. And even on his record somewhere in England, he does yeah. a, the cover of the traditional song, Baltimore Oriole. Yeah. <laughs> and he makes it sound like his own song. And I think that's when he was making his most energetic music. I think that's when he was enjoying it the most. I think that's the golden age of George's solo career, aside from All Things Must Pass. I love it. I love it too. And and I love like All Things Must Pass. I, I wonder sometimes... If like the way that that overshadows this, the other '70s records and 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 the '80s ones as well, um, that there's uh, that that you know there's none of those records they none of them tried to be all things must pass so they were slept on, but like it's astounding how you know you mentioned like thirty three and a third and like an extra texture and and self titled that there are great songs on all those albums that are absolutely first rate and. You know, it's wild to think that, you know, at one point in the 70s, George had to put out a George Harrison Greatest Hits album where side two was his old Beatles songs because, like, they just, you know, they didn't, um, you know, they just they didn't have enough faith or he didn't have enough faith maybe in his solo work to even pad out side two of his solo album, his solo Greatest Hits album. And, and you think, you know, what if they put, you know, If You Believe or, you know, like, Ooh Baby or, you know, Pure Smokey or give me love. I mean, that was on side one because that was a big hit, but that's one of my very favorite George Harrison songs that's become really obscure. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many like beautiful girl. Yeah. Um, that's a good dark one. Sweet I think lady we, you mentioned, yeah, we were talking about dark sweet lady and here comes the moon, Yeah, which is a great sequel to here comes the sun that not many people know about, but they should. Um, I, I love what a specific LA 79 that record is like, it's yeah. definitely, it's, you know, <laughs> He, he's he's like I've done my world traveling records. He's like I really want to sound like a rock star in a studio with a lot of money, you know, and maybe a fair bit amount of substances in a, a slick professional recording studio in L.A. in 1979, and like absolutely nails that vibe. And that it's it's a really great you know sort of like Toto Steely Dan Tom Petty kind of like totally like great mainstream 79 rock record. It's wild that it's so slept on. Is George your favorite Beatle? Well, honestly, I I had to confront this question. I avoid this question all the time. Honestly, uh, it's... Thank you all for listening to the first of three episodes with our very special guest, Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone. Thank you, Rob, for coming on. If you enjoyed this episode, and if you want to hear who Rob's favorite Beatle is, please subscribe so you'll get a notification about next week's episode as it releases. Please rate the show if you like it and follow us on Twitter at Beatles Earth. Don't forget to follow Rob and we'll see you next week.